Chris Alvarez, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We talk about military history from ancient to modern times and everything in between. You can find more podcast episodes, written interviews, word games, and the most detailed military history timeline on the web at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. We're on YouTube at WarScholar1945. You can send comments and suggestions to info at warscholar.org. Thanks for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. David Blome, author of Greek Warfare Beyond the Polis, Defense Strategy in the Making of Ancient Federal States, published by Cornell University Press, uh, coming out April 15th, 2020, is what I have. Thank you for speaking with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So first, how did you get into um, studying and writing on this subject of ancient Greek warfare? Well, for me, it started in the Marine Corps. That was my, my first real job. I, I left high school early to, uh, to enlist in the Marine Corps, and um, that was in 1998 and then into 99. And uh, over the years, I, I just did a lot of reading and... Um, it got onto the ancient Greeks uh, originally by a copy of the Iliad when I was deployed in Iraq in 2004. And if um, if anyone remembers this, this is when the movie Troy came out. Hmm. And before um, before we went over there, we, we went just to see the movie. There's nothing else to do, and I, I didn't really think it was that impressive. But uh, but somebody bought a copy of the book, and I read it in Iraq, and and was just really intrigued because I recognize so much of it was so familiar mm-hmm. to uh, anyone that spent any amount of time in a military or has been deployed. Um, there's a lot there and I wanted to learn more about it. And I knew I was getting out of the Marine Corps. I knew I was going to go to college. And, um, I said, well, I'll just take a couple classes and, and, and see if there's anything to this. Um, but that really was the beginning. I, um, I went to the University of Pennsylvania as an undergraduate, and I started off thinking that I, w- I was going to pursue a medical career and very quickly got away from that um, because really all, the only thing I wanted to learn about was, was primarily ancient Greek and the ancient Greeks, and the more I learned, the more fascinating I, I became. And after um, after finishing a senior thesis with, um, with my undergraduate advisor, I, I just wanted to keep doing it. So I applied to a PhD program, and got accepted and, and uh, saw it all the way through. And a um, bit of a long story, but yeah, that's no, that, kind of how it all started. Yeah, no, that's cool. So, um, all right, so is this your first uh, book on the subject? Yeah, this is my first book on the subject, it is. Okay. Um, so how does how is the book broken down? Does it go chronologically, or do you approach it by themes? Well, it does. It, it focuses on the the classical period, which is um, roughly from the time of the the Persian Wars, so Thermopylae, um, oh, Marathon, Thermopylae, roughly from that time frame to uh, about the middle of the 4th century BCE. Mm-hmm. So just a couple of decades before the rise of Alexander the Great mm-hmm. uh, or, or the Macedonians. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's its, its chronological focus. And Within the book, there's four cases that that span that time frame. So the uh, the very the first case starts around 490. Um, don't have an exact date on that particular instant. This is the topic of chapter one, mm-hmm. but it's around 490. Um, and the last one is around 370. Mm-hmm. So, okay. And um, I notice in the in the book description, uh, it mentions these strategies of the upland Greeks and uh, sort of attention with um, other, I guess, the states in the lower areas and the flatter areas. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that is the focus, The uh, which um, wasn't my intent going into the project. But, um, yeah, the, the, the polis, or, or polis, however you choose to pronounce it, um, is generally associated with the, the lowland regions of the classical Greek world. Um, so places like, um, of course, Athens is, is probably the most famous, and Sparta and Thebes. Um, so city-states is just another word for, for polis. Mm-hmm. And 
you don't see too many of them in the more mountainous regions. They're, they're there, but it's not really the, the main event. It's not really the central organizing polity. It's not really a city-state. Mm-hmm. It's a different form of state, which is called an, an ethnos in ancient Greek. And it gives us words like ethnicity and, and ethnic. And it, and it translates r- roughly to nation or people or sometimes tribe. And so all of the Greeks that I study in the book are all from those mountainous regions and during the classical period where they're just to judge from the written sources there just doesn't seem like there was that much going on mm-hmm. and um so i really dug into those four cases and um and i'm offering a, a different perspective on that yeah i see that it says um that perhaps military history hasn't been properly taken into account uh in greek mm-hmm. scholarship so if you could expand on that that idea well, it's, it's certainly been um, it's a, a really important focus of, of ancient Greek scholarship, but it's it's never really looked at these mountainous regions that seriously. And it, it's not I don't think it's because it's not that anyone um, you know has some sort of deficiency or they they miss something. There's just not that much material that's there, not that much evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's some, and. When I started the project, I was looking for unconventional military encounters, unconventional operations, anything that was just out of the ordinary, because there's just so much work, so much good work, too, on conventional Greek warfare during the classical period. I was like, well, what about some of the stuff that's a bit unusual? Mm-hmm. And so I went through, I mean, I, from reading the primary sources, I had... I could point to different incidents, but I didn't really, I wasn't sure how they were related or if they were related. That took some time. But as I was doing this, as I, as I focused on, well, really the four cases that end up being the, the subject of the book, I, I was just very surprised. I said, well, nobody's really talked about these. Or they're brought up and then kind of dismissed. Um, or sometimes they're interesting for, for um linguistic reasons like there'd be debates in in commentaries about um say thucydides use of a certain word but nothing that really focused on the actual battles the military encounters themselves mm-hmm. and that's where i got started so what so when you say unusual um how, what give me some examples of what was unusual that you came across in these these um conflicts or battles well probably the, the easiest way to find is the what was usual, most of us agree, would be um, a conventional encounter um, or really the sorts of things that uh, most people are familiar with, that they, they know anything about Greek warfare, they're interested in Greek warfare. And it, the ordinary or the conventional encounter would be two phalanxes lined up with shields and spears and a, a clash in an open field, um, a decisive victory and that'd be the end of it. Now, that's, a, that, a, that's just a, a rough outline. There wasn't really, in, in the cases that I'm studying, there, there was awareness of uh, many of the different conventions of Greek warfare, so the, so the rules that often were broken, but were still there, nevertheless. There's an awareness of it, and there's almost a deliberate uh, manipulation of them. So it's, it's understood that, that Greeks would behave a certain way um, on a military campaign. And it's that understanding that the, uh, the upland Greeks that I study actually, um, exploited. Expo- uh, you mean exploited, um, certain manners of behavior that the, I guess the, the lowland Greeks, um, follow. Right. Hmm. Right. So it's, um, looking for a, a more, uh, an open fight on a, uh, say a, a large field, um, if we show up and we line up, we're expecting you to come out and fight. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't do that, it must be because you're afraid or you're, you're you, something, something's wrong. Well, okay. Well, if we know that you're going to do that um, and we know that there's only a couple of places that all of you invaders can fit, well, we can position ourselves around that area and wait for you to, to move into a space where, where you'd be comfortable. And, and then that's when we're going to surprise you. 
And that, that's the basic pattern is a, almost a, a, a luring of these big, uh, heavily armed lowland armies into terrain that suits the defenders, the upland Greeks. Hmm. And once they get them there, um, sometimes they attack, sometimes they don't. But, but once they're there, um, that's when you see the actual combat that hmm. study in the book. Yeah, that example makes me think of the 300, of course, you know, where they sort of um, funnel the enemy into a small, pa a narrow pass, more or mm -hmm. less. Hmm. What other, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned these rules that were sometimes broken, uh, I guess, even even by lowland Greeks during warfare. Do you have any examples of those that you could mention? Um, a big one is, is activities at night. Mm-hmm. Um, so m most of the time, um, you know, normal circumstances, conventions of ancient warfare, most activity was done during the day. Um, and although it's not always stated with the upland Greeks that I'm studying, it's, it's clear that the attacks that they, they execute, there, there's simply no way that they could have happened without significant activity during the night. Um, and sometimes even you know, the, the very first case that I studied, the attack happens at night mm -hmm. and very unusual and also unusual that in that case, and we're talking about the, the Phocians, this is the, the topic of chapter one, the, uh, the attackers, they, they chalk themselves up um, to, so they can see each other for different reasons and, um, and they attack at night, which is extremely, just almost nothing like it in the rest of, of classical Greek history, but, um, but they did it. I'm speaking with David Blome, author of Greek Warfare Beyond the Polis. You can get more information by searching for him on academia.edu. If you like this podcast, please rate it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. Please also follow, like, and comment on my website, warscholar.org, at YouTube under Warscholar1945, on Twitter, and Facebook at War Scholar and on Instagram at Chris Alvarez War Scholar. If you like science fiction, fantasy, and horror, please check out my podcast, Full Contact Nerd, also located at chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. If you like outer space, business, technology, and policy, please check out my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Now back to the podcast. When you mentioned night, the first thing that popped into my mind was the story of Odysseus um, mm -hmm. going into the enemy camp and, and basically killing people while they were sleeping, um, which in one hand seems dishonorable, but on the other hand, he was praised for his um, his canniness to uh, surprise the enemy and, and dispatch a few of them. Yep, yep. With, with Diomedes, that's right. He um, took a partner and... Um... This is a this is a good tension just in, in ancient Greek warfare in, in, in general, but there is this we value the uh, the courage, value the manliness, value uh, the 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 ones that want to stand up and fight in the open, but then there's also value placed on that cunningness. That's right, just like Odysseus, um, mm -hmm. it's value. Don't maybe not just as much, but um, but as well. So, so that is a, that is a tension. So it makes me wonder if, um, so you, you do have these two different kinds of heroes, the, you know, upfront honorable fighter versus the canny efficient fighter. Mm -hmm. Um, would that tension have existed because you had two different sort of societies in Greece and each one was promoting their own values or, you know, how do you think that came about that sort of, um, dichotomy yeah the that's... no that's good yeah the um you know the basic breakdown of, of upland lowland um ethnos polis now the the greeks did think that way they were binary a lot of times in their thinking so for instance free slave greek non-greek that sort of sense sort of thing but you're really talking about differences in a in a way of life and as an ancient greek if you lived in a lowland, um, primarily in a place that really relied on agriculture, for instance, that um, had access to to quality fields and and um, 
had a developed political system that was based in a city-state, a polis. Um, your way of life was different compared to Greeks that didn't have as much access to good land for agriculture, that relied more on um, animals for sustenance, that um, didn't really have that much architecture, didn't really have that many built-up spaces, and they weren't really organized along the lines of a, a city-state. Um, so a little bit just just more loose and clear relationship with each other as an ethnos, shared language, shared customs, but not really as intense in the political sphere. So I think and argue the the differences have a lot to do with the way of life that you encountered in the mountains or in the lowlands of the classical Greek world. Um, and then, and then with that, so you have a way of war that's informed by that and shaped by it. So very much in communication with each other. It's not like the, the Greeks up in the mountains just didn't know what was going on down there. Uh, of course they did. But the, their practices were, were rooted more in that mountain way of life. That's the argument, really. Okay. Are there, can you point to any um, major differences in the way that these two groups uh, trained um, for warfare? Um, or again, you said they sort of, they were aware, you know, obviously they sh had some cultural exchange and that sort of thing, but did you identify anything else uh, that we haven't talked about? Well, the, the, the reliance, the, the big one on, um, so this is from the, the upland Greeks, the reliance on surprise is, um, big and deception too, which, um, I found very intriguing as I started to study these. It, um, it, it's not something that the ancient writers who document these encounters, it's not something that they appear to have been aware of. Um, they offer these reasonable explanations for why things happened in, say, Arcadia. So the Spartans invade Arcadia in 370. And Xenophon offers these explanations of why the Spartans weren't so successful, but um, but the possibilities that well maybe it didn't quite understand what the Arcadians were up to, and, that, and this was really a, a, the main focus of the book. Um, these possibilities, surprise and deception are the the main ones, and um, compared to the way that the Athenians typically fought on land, and certainly the Spartans and the Thebans and the Thessalians. Um, day and night. So that's, that's probably the main one or the main two, the surprise and then the, the deception. Did the Upland Greeks also have, you know, your prominent heroes among the groups, the way the Lowland Greeks did, or was it more, was it more, um, soldiers were at the same level? Well, they had, um, the Phocians, the Arcadians, the, I mean, they had, uh, they had like very deep, uh, Greek roots, so they they come up in Homer, for instance, and like the catalog of ships. But um, and they did the Arcadians in particular were famous for being uh, fierce soldiers. They had a reputation for being some of the best mercenaries, and and that's as hoplites, that's as conventional Greek infantrymen um, with the shield, with the armor. The um, the Acarnanians too. Talk about the Akronanians in chapter three. Um, again, they, they repelled a, a Spartan invasion. They, they had hoplites as well. And it wasn't really the, the focus or the, the, the primary means of fighting for these armies all the time, but they were fully capable of it. And they had the resources to field armies along those lines. I don't know if you've mentioned it. You also discussed the Aetolians. That's yep. the fourth group. Oh. Yeah, and they, and they had done. They appear, there's no record of them fighting as, as hoplites at, at all. And they, um, that, this is the, that's only the, the route of the Athenians because they, they really did. That was an extremely violent incident, um, in Atolia. And there's, uh, zero record that the Atolians fought as anything other than light armed um, skirmishers, like javelineers. Hmm. So. Um, how about, uh, is there anything about naval warfare in what you found? 
There's not from the the Athenian invasion of Atolia in 426. That came from the sea, hmm. but upland Greeks and navies know um, nothing at all. I mean, nothing that nothing like the, the triremes of the Athenian fleet. Hmm. Um, no, so it was primarily a, a land phenomenon. So, since you did mention that Homer does have um, names that some of these groups had ships, um, it just makes me wonder, how would they have become, have any kind of uh, ships or naval aspect to their military forces? Yeah, well, that, the the catalog of ships, yeah, that's a mythical um, event of, as you know, of the Achaeans or the Greeks that sailed to Troy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened to those ships or what they were, I mean, who, who knows? Um, but during the classical period, there is um, no record at all of any sort of Navy or any sort of maritime operations either. Um, Arcadia, for instance, this is um, the, the latest incident that I studied, is, is basically a landlocked region, mm-hmm. kind of like Afghanistan is. Um, so no access to the coast, um, and then also very mountainous. The Aetolians, during the, the time that the Athenians invaded, were basically the same thing, um, did have access to a, a, a strip of the coast, but it wasn't much compared to their, their territory. It was, they were primarily inland. The um, Akarnanians, the third case, they, they did have a, a coastal component to their, their territory, and, and that is where the, the Spartans invaded from, was from the coast. And, um, and then finally the Arcadians, which I mentioned, at the start, which were landlocked. So, mm-hmm. And then the Phocians, the, the, I got the Phocians, um, also practically landlocked, um, with only the slightest access to uh, the coast, uh, around where, where Thermopylae is, actually. So, so they didn't really have a maritime component to, uh, to their territory. Do you have any information as far as differences in uh, in weapons and armor and also uh, maybe in their supplies or food that they ate between these two um, different groups? None of that actually seemed to be out of the ordinary in any way. And the only way that, that I can say that with any confidence is that anything that, that was out of the ordinary, that's typically what ancient authors like to talk about. So... It's different to have an army that, that doesn't wear armor and doesn't have shields and spears. This is the Aetolian case. So Thucydides is going to mention that, that all these Aetolians were just light-armed. Like they didn't really, they weren't wearing much, and their, their weapons didn't really seem to be all that impressive. But they did beat the Athenians handily. So what the uh, the Greeks from the upland regions are, are, are using, um, well, actually, pretty familiar it's just the, the on on balance they had more skirmishers and more more people fighting with javelins than wearing armor and carrying shields and spears so that was all perfectly um what we'd expect in other words so in the case of the Phocians, they the uh, they account from herodotus as a it's, uh, it's not not much there, but um, but enough. But it, it appears that they actually did fight wearing armor and, and shields and helmets and all that. So just what was so unusual about that case is, as I said before, it happened at night. Um, so a raid at night in the mountains, which is very, very unusual. But otherwise, no, the, the weapons, the equipment was what we'd expect. And... And as far as food's concerned, it's the, the, the same sorts of concerns. The... Um, you know, logistics of ancient armies, you, you know, you're, you could carry some food into a territory that you're invading if you're, say, Athenians or Spartans or Thessalians. But, um, but you're also going to have to live off the land. And some of that comes from ravaging crops from the Greeks that you're invading. Um, some of it comes just from the, the grass that was available for cattle, for your baggage train, things like that. Um, but again, nothing, nothing out of the ordinary. I mean, they were all very familiar. The Greek mainland is the Greek mainland. So the Greeks knew what they couldn't, couldn't eat and what was and wasn't available. So it seems that, uh, the mountains would be a more difficult, um, 
area to invade because of um, less food, maybe less less crops. Um, whereas it would be easier to invade, you know, the lowland areas because there was food, more food. Yeah, and this is one of the one of the common things that we we see with that with, with lowland warfare is that devastation of crops and um as a as a means to um get someone to come out and fight we're gonna we're gonna try to hack down your 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 grapes your your vines your olives um not not gonna destroy the crops i mean that'd be extremely difficult to do but um but we are gonna damage them so, so it was expected, yes, that everybody's going to have grapes, everyone's going to have olives. Um, there may be fruit trees, depending on the time of year. Um, but you're right, to bring, um, say, cattle, horses into a place like Atolia, you, you'd have to wonder. I mean, this is really going to be slow. You're going to be very slow. You're going to be clunky. You're going to be loud. And you're going to be vulnerable. And, and so like in the Atolian's case, that's well aware of that. And which is also very typical of mountain territory is that there's only so many places you can go if you are a an army. So your your routes are limited. And looking at a topographical map, you start to see, well, look, if and this is this is the Athenian invasion of Atolia. Mm-hmm. This is chapter two. If you land here, like Thucydides said, this is where the Athenians end up, and you're gonna invade Atolia. Well, there's really only one route that you can take. <laughs> there's one reasonable one. There's a couple that you could take, but there's only one that makes sense. And if you're an Atolian, you you know that, and you've known it all your life. So then it's just a question of, well, how far are these guys going to go? Um, and when they make it clear that that they're serious about this, well, then from the Atolian perspective, I guess it's time to fight. And um, activated that defensive strategy that plan that they developed they put it in place and um and they pulled it off like very successfully did the upland greeks um fortify any of these these uh, limited routes into their territories you know permanent fortifications of some kind or Uh, not during the classical period um not during the time that uh not during the time that i'm i'm studying Mm -hmm. these greeks And, and in fact that's one of the if they did, um, I mean, it'd almost be almost be a waste of time. It's not like you couldn't get around fortifications. I mean, there were different ways that you could go, but it'd be almost impossible to, to stop an invading army. So this was um, back to the Persian Wars with the Greeks initially thinking they were gonna they were gonna confront the Persians at the Valley of Tempe, but it's just too big. Like this isn't gonna work. There's no way that we can. It, this is a, a choke point, so the person have to, they have to come through here. But the space is just too big. We we need a narrower space. So and, and in that case, they fell back to Thermopylae. But even then, it wasn't like Thermopylae was the only route through Central Greece. There were others. There was one that went through Focus that um that the Persians did use with uh, the Salian guys. So there wasn't any. It was almost like if a, if an army is going to invade. They're they're going to be they're going to be in our territory. So it's not can we keep them out. It's more what are we going to do if they're here, hmm. and um, that was also very different. The the, the basic conventions of, of lowland warfare in the ancient Greek world, that territorial integrity was huge. Um, no, you didn't violate our land. And, and that's, we'd line up, we'd bring our army out, our army of the citizens, and we're going to meet you right there. And we're going to prevent you from coming in here. But for the Upland Greeks, it, they didn't really seem that concerned about that. They, um, in fact, it was, it was to their advantage to let you into their territory, um, draw you into an area that was um, beneficial from the defender's perspective. And once you were there, they could get you there. That was the time to attack. So not keep you out, but bring you in um, to where we where we want you, and we'll fight on our terms. Hmm. And and I'm and I argue that they were so good at that that the writers like Thucydides and uh, Xenophon and Herodotus weren't even aware that these incidents that they're documenting that um, they 
just had all these fantastic explanations for why, you know, the Spartans and Athenians and uh, why they weren't so successful. But everything that I just said, that that does not appear to have crossed their mind. And so there's, there's no way those, uh, you know, those, those upland Greeks, that, there's no way they could have done that. They're, they weren't sophisticated enough for that. It must be for some other reason. It must be because Agisileus, the Spartan commander, it must be because he made a mistake. So and I'm arguing just the opposite. Interesting. So um, how was territory marked um, then? Um, since you mentioned that, you know, don't cross this area. Um, what was, were there distinct boundaries? And, and if so, how, how did they um, establish that? And there, there were boundary stones that um, marked off different territory, different types of territory, and then geographical features as well that shifted from time to time. But nothing... And, and a mountain range, for instance. So, you know, the, the Spartans and, and the Arcadians and Spartans, they were neighbors, but they were separated by a, a pretty serious mountain range. So not nothing like a, a fence or a stone wall or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also just the people that lived there that were, say, uh, you know, ethnically Arcadian. Um, this is Arcadian, not Laconian, not Spartan. But no, they weren't as certainly not as clear as as they are today with, mm-hmm. let's say, nation-state boundaries and state boundaries. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with David Blom, author of Greek Warfare Beyond the Polis. You can get more information by searching for him on academia.edu. If you like this podcast, please rate it on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. Please also follow, like, and comment on my website, warscholar.org at YouTube under War Scholar 1945, on Twitter and Facebook at War Scholar, and on Instagram at Chris Alvarez War Scholar. If you like science fiction, fantasy, and horror, please check out my podcast, Full Contact Nerd, also located at chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. If you like outer space business, technology, and policy, please check out my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Now back to the podcast. Let's uh, turn towards to the resources you used for your research. Um, obviously, uh, ancient authors and such. And also, was there any um, archaeological evidence um, that you used in your research? Yeah, there was. the The main form of it was um, archaeological surveys of of all of these regions that um, that were there, and some of them were were um, you know thirty, forty years old that I just talked about um, Atolia in particular, uh, just the way of life in Atolia. And um, I was interested in, it was probably, I think, one of the better examples in, in, in Atolia's case. These are archaeologists, I was interested out in, in routes of movement and communication, things like that. And this group of, of archaeologists, they studied um, the, the line of sight between different, um, features, like geographical features in Atolia. And they offered, it was this really neat study, this inner visibility study. They said that, you know, if you're, if you're in one place, this is what you could see. So if you did potentially signal from there, it could get you to this point. And if you were at that point and you say base north, you could see two other geographical uh, locations, and if you could see them, you could make your way all the way through Atolian territory. It was really fascinating what they put forth. So they went physically occupied all these different sites, and then said, "Yeah, you you could see each other, you could signal to each other." So I use that to think about the Athenian invasion of that same territory where they conducted that study, and I don't think it's a coincidence that the Aetolians were, were well prepared for the Athenians when they did show up and initiate their, their invasion. I don't think it's a coincidence that that happened so quickly. The Aetolian response was so fast and so effective. They were actually fully capable. If they, if they saw ships land on that coast, then they could have signaled the rest of the Aetolian ethnos in a, you know less than a day. It would have been that quick. So that's, that's one archaeological study, one survey that work that I used. Likewise with, Really, you know, routes of uh, movement in central Greece, in, in the, the case of the Phocians, the, um, when sites were built up, when they were fortified, so sometimes these smaller towns, um, when exactly were they defensible? 
Um, was it during the time of this invasion? And a lot of times the answer to that question was no. Or as far as we could tell, fortifications came a little bit later. So th- those are the main forms of, of archaeological evidence. Mm. Are there other, so as far as the ancient authors um, or historians, are there any others um, you haven't mentioned yet that uh, you also used? Well, the main ones, so for in the first case with the Phocians is Herodotus. And there's other ancient authors like Pausanias, for instance, um, that were writing just centuries later. Mm-hmm. And while they're not, sometimes they, they show that, that they're based on a different um, account, so not on Herodotus, which can be helpful, can be, um, it's worth thinking about. It's difficult to say, well, here you have Herodotus who was writing within 10, 20, you know, within a generation of this um, incident happening. It should, uh, should we favor his account over someone that was writing 300, 400 years later? Um, so it seems obvious that you'd want to go with Herodotus. But sometimes those later authors, they do give you some things to think about. Uh, Plutarch, in particular. So um, writing in the, for, for a Roman audience in a Roman world, you know, very interested in, in these classical Greeks and, and the things that, that they did to each other and, and, and all this sort of thing. So sometimes he'll offer um, details and, and an account that, that is different. And, and again, it's worth, you, know, you, have to, you have to take into account, and then as a historian, you're, you're trying to figure out what are the best reasons for going with this interpretation and, and often that's in light of what the archaeologists have um, offered from surveys and things like that. But the main ones, yeah, Herodotus is the main one, um, and then Thucydides, and then Xenophon. Um, and in the case of Thucydides and Xenophon, like, these are contemporaries. So they were um, possibly, it's a, it's a bit of a, it could have been a part of the encounter, although probably weren't but they talked to the people that, that were there. So that's uh, very helpful from a historian's perspective. Did you get a chance to, have you visited any of these areas and, and uh, have you seen any artifacts associated with any of this research? I have, I, I, I worked extensively in Greece as an archeologist for, for six summers. And uh, so traveled extensively in, in all these areas, and then, and then many others, and uh, as you you, do, you start to get a you get a feel for the land, and that helped immensely when I sat down with these ancient sources because you know that's a very you're looking at an account from Thucydides or Xenophon, and you know it's kind of two dimensional. Like they'll talk about mountains and things like that, but but you don't really have the the nitty gritty detail of of what it's like to move through terrain in Greece. And you say, well, why wouldn't he talk about something like that? Well, probably because he knows that everybody that's reading it already knows what it's like. To, I mean, they're Greeks. He's writing in Greek. He's writing for a Greek audience. They don't need to be told what it's like to make your way through the mountains of, of central Greece, for instance. Mm-hmm. But for a modern audience, like the, you know, the rest of us, well, well, that's actually really helpful. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that we should take for granted. And so um, I spent a lot of time traveling um, on my on my own and, and just going on long hikes and walks and and taking in the you know what it's like to move in, in different regions to say and of course the museums as well I mean there's the spearheads and arrowheads and and, and sling stones um, I was working at a at a dig in northern Greece and on the the very last day that we were digging we uncovered this. Um, uh, this cachet of um, hundreds of these lead sling bullets. They look like um, like like little almonds, although they're they're bigger than that. Mm-hmm. Um, made out of lead, these things would have been just lethal. And it's and it's one thing to think about. Oh yeah, they say sling stones, and you know that's okay. But to to hold some of these in your hand um, and then try to imagine. You know, based on the work that archaeologists have done with, um, you know, reconstructing ancient slings. I mean, these things could go through metal, some of them. Um, So that's all. That's what I'm thinking when I'm sitting down with Thucydides and questioning Thucydides' account of what happened in Atolia or Acarnania or Arcadia and Xenophon. So 
Yeah, so from my perspective as a, as a researcher, then um, that's right there, right next to the right next to the ancient Greek. <laughs> wow, that's cool. What part of the research was most enjoyable for you? Was writing the, um, the reconstructing the actual encounters themselves. If um, anyone that, that that decides to read the book, and and if, and if you're one of those people out there, then thank you up front. But um, most of the chapters are structured in a way that they they give you some background to th this is who we're talking about. So these are the Phocians, for instance. These are the Arcadians. Um, this is the this is the incident. This is how it fits into that history of the Arcadians, the Phocians. Here's the actual defense, or here's the route. And that's the main event in each one of those chapters. So it's a very detailed reconstruction of what happened based on what archaeologists have done, based on my reading of the text, like all of that. Um, that was the most fun. Because what I did is I took the ancient authors, I translated them myself. So I put the ancient Greek, I copied the ancient Greek off of a website, um, put it in the Word document, split it apart. I did my own translation of it, then deleted the ancient Greek. So now I have my translation of it. And then split the my translations in a way that said, okay, you know, Xenophon says this, but we have a lot to think about just based on what he says. And, um, and so as you read, you'll see there's the quoted text, and then there's the um, basically the commentary and my analysis of what's actually going on or what could have been going on. Um, and, and that becomes the heart of each chapter. And I just got lost in that. I mean, I, yeah, I lost track of time. I enjoyed it so much. And that was certainly my, my favorite part. <laughs> Were there more than four cases you could have done or were those the only that that sort of fit what you were trying to do yeah this is the i think the somewhat the crazy thing is for the entire classical period these are the ones that um these are the ones that that made it in the ancient authors because there were more than just these four groups of, of upland greeks the ones that i talk about in the book there were there were uh, many other upland or, or mountain societies but um, but we we just don't hear about them until much later. And the Macedonians are one of them. They uh, they come up. They're talking Macedonians when the Persians invade right at the you know the, the start of the fifth century BCE. But um, they were there the whole time. <laughs> but they're not in the classical sources. So the encounters, those those unusual encounters in Greek warfare, the ones that made it, they, these are the four. And um, it took me a little bit of time to find them and then uh, start to look at them together. But um, but I went through all of them, all the, the ancient sources, and this this was it. But um, but I didn't know this going into it. But as I found when I did sit down and do the analysis and then and then look at that in relation to each other, there was just this very intriguing pattern that started to come up. And that's that's basically the subtitle of the book. This is defense, but then strategy, and then this early proto-history of federal states. They all have that in common. And so I had to go and learn more about ancient federalism and ancient federal states and studies of ancient strategy and um, ultimately came up with the central argument of the book um, based on that analysis of these, these, these four, the only four of them. So what did you find that was most surprising during your research? I was surprised at how effective the defenses were as I, I was studying them. I, I wasn't, in some cases, it reading, say, Xenophon at face value, and he has all his reasons that, you know, the Spartans weren't so successful. Um, but you train very early to, you, you don't, you know, not going to take an ancient author at face value, and there's a, there's a whole skill set of, of how you, you question and, and deal with ancient sources. But, um, just with that, just the, the just the, the historian's natural inclination to ask questions about sources, and um, why a writer says the things that that in this case he he says Xenophon. I said, well, these. I mean, this is really interesting, um, because it, this sounds a lot like an ambush, mm. <laughs> in in one case, or in a couple cases, in fact. And uh, Xenophon's clearly not thinking that. And but I was like, well, I wonder if there's anything to this, and then. 
to say to find one of those in all the ancient sources, like that'd be interesting and be worth talking about. To find two of them, I was like, huh, yeah, these are kind of similar. You do have this surprise raid at night. To find three of them, I said, this is getting interesting. And then to find a fourth one, it took me a while. I think I can remember clearly it took me about uh, two weeks to um, go through those sources even just after some preliminary research to realize that they did have a common theme and then to, to start checking that against other research on these societies. And so I had, I had a hunch based on the analysis that I'd done and it took two weeks to, to confirm that, that no, I was actually on to something. So for doing the work of a, a classical scholar, a historian, I mean, that's just as, as exciting as it gets. And yeah. I mean, it makes work, it makes it worth doing. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but I, when it, I do remember and I'll, and I'll never forget having the four in front of me and, um, and just saying, that's it. No, that's it. That's how they're related. And, um, yeah, almost just couldn't believe it, but it was, it was there and it came from, doing the nitty-gritty detailed reconstruction of these four encounters. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I know there's obviously with, with studying ancient history, there's a lot of gaps in information and stuff, but, um, was there a particular, uh, question that you wanted to get at that was the most difficult, um, to come to a conclusion? Maybe you did reach a conclusion, um, but it took a while more than other aspects, or maybe there's something you'd really st still like to know. Yeah, there's there's two versions of that that, um, and they go in two directions. So one is is back in time, so even before the classical period, and then there's one moving forward, which would be a lot easier to study because the the amount. Of, of sources just increases as you get closer to the Roman period and into the Roman period. And, and those are two, I think, really intriguing questions that, um, I'm arguing that these upland Greeks each individually had developed a defensive strategy and they used it to repel invasions from the lowlands. And I'm also arguing that they did this without the direction of a central formal federal government. And that's an original argument. It's based on analysis of these sources that, um, for the most part, have been overlooked or just not really um, questioned that much. But okay, if that if that's the case, then and and this is in place by the time of the invasions. Well, when did that start? And so some of the archaeological research that I did to work in Greece. In fact, most of it was based on Bronze Age settlements. And so this is the time, you know, roughly 1200, um, 1200 BC. So you're talking, you know, almost, you know, this is a long time before the classical period. But um, most of these upland areas, they, they, there are Bronze Age remains of a society that inhabited those mountains and, and really, at the the middle of that Iron Age, this is the, like Homer's uh, day. They're there. Arcadians are there, and Phocians are there. So, when did this start? Um, what were the reasons for it um, coming together in the first place? And they're all, unfortunately, just just the nature of ancient evidence. I don't know if anybody will be able to answer them, but they're but they're, they're questions that are worth asking. And and if uh, ever someone can can find evidence that that speaks to, to the questions. I think it's, it's really worth digging into. And then later in history, the other question is that the, uh, the Aetolians, for instance, they, they formed a, they did form a, a league state called the Aetolian league that, um, was, this was, this was Rome's you know, main rival for a period of time. So it's very powerful, very well organized, um, during the Hellenistic period. And in particular, there's an Achaean League as well, a Phocian League. Um, the Acarnanians became part of the Aetolian League, so they, they, they joined up some time later. But um, they were very successful. And the, the structures that they developed, the federal structures, um, were similar to 
the ones that the Romans developed. And, and, and this is what the, the founding fathers are talking about in the Federalist Papers. You know, they're, they're interested in this kind of stuff. He's, um, Polybius, the Greek writer, and writing in a Roman world, he's talking about federal Republican structures. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Greeks in some ways were there first and they were really good at this. And I'm arguing that they were, they were good at that organization. They were good at that sort of um, collective action well before they were actually formal states. So what is it about these incidents? What, what can they tell us about the roots and, and then later successes of federal states in the Greek world? Hmm. I have a question that is, probably outside the scope of the book but um so the word league you know why why that word and what does it mean what does it say about the uh, political um organization of these groups yeah the federal terminology the you know league state and uh federal state and um confederation so the uh, a league is is more of uh, a combination of two uh, independent or two um coherent state. So in the case of the Aetolians, again, meant something to be Aetolian during the classical period. It meant something to be Akarnanian. Um, so they were two, and this is just in the classical period, they were two states in a sense, or, or nations, uh, people, like the sense of ethnos, that Greek word again. But if you combine them, and there's a formal agreement between the two, they become something else. So they're individual, they're still two states, but now they're also part of a bigger state. Um, and there were there were political alliances along those lines as, as a league, and there were also religious ones as well. Um, the, uh, the, the Delphic and, and, and Fictione. So you have this, um, a, a league state that's centered on Delphi. That's, um, you know, it's, it's constituent members. We're, we're all from different political regions. So the Phocians and one. So, yeah. Was there anything in your research? Um, I know this is ancient stuff, but anything that emotionally moved you, either positively or, or negatively? Emotionally, there. Well, that's a good question. I um, I think there's a yeah. I had um, you know, I had you know, just the good fortune of having um, fantastic friends and advisors along the way that. Um, read my work and took it seriously and really were, were critical. And I don't think I was fully aware of this, but I, um, I, I was very critical of the Spartans in particular and Agisileus and the, um, his, his decisions and his, how he conducted affairs in, in Akronati and Arcadia in particular. And I had, I had people that, that called me on that. Like almost saying, like, don't you think you're being a little harsh on the Spartans? Or don't you think you're being a little unfair to Agisileus? This was actually even like one of the one of the external reviewers for the book um, pointed this out as well. And um, and so I did have to do some thinking about that because once somebody pointed it out to me, a couple people did. Yeah, what is it about this? And maybe maybe that's true. And so I had to go back and actually, um, and I think in in a way that was that was a little bit more objective is was to balance some of the criticism that I had of the the Spartans. Yeah, so there was something, I, and I'm yeah, there was something to it. You know, yeah, it really, and I'm not entirely sure what it was, but but yeah, I think that probably a part of it was to 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 have someone like Xenophon, who who I actually, um, I mean, he's, a, he's an incredible source, but um, to have him go thousands of years with just Xenophon all the time saying that this guy is so wonderful and he did everything right. There was something about that that bothered me. It was like, well, let's maybe set the record straight or um, in a way that did connect with my military experience in a way that to say that, yeah, well, there's the official account and then there's what's act- what actually happened. And, mm-hmm. and anybody that's been there knows that there can be some serious discrepancies between the two. And so it did feel like I was dealing with the official account. And, um, I, I do think there was, yeah, there was an emotional component to that, you know, this ancient official account that, you know, maybe it took 2000 years, but, um, <laughs> or it's long as that maybe, maybe we can set the record straight. So that, and yeah, so that's yeah, a good question. 
So um, ultimately, what do you hope the book will do? Right. I, I hope it gets people um, thinking and arguing about um, these upland states during the classical period, the, the, the legacy of these military successes. Um, I, I mean, I, I really, I hope that people um, challenge me on, on what I'm arguing. I, I think that's, that's really the purpose of good history books. And, um, and I'm, a hundred percent convinced that someone is going to, and I hope someone does this, but I'm convinced it's going to happen. Someone will review the book and point out things that I wasn't aware of or make points that I didn't quite take into account either at all, or, or that I didn't think about too seriously. And, um, and I'll learn from that and I'll be that much uh, better equipped for the next round mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever I choose to do next. So, so it's exciting. It doesn't. Uh, I'm curious, and I'm and I'm just just, just with the nature of things. I'm, I'm imagining it'll be something that I'm not thinking about right now. So yeah. <laughs> it's in a, in, in a way something to look forward to. I, I just really do hope that people uh, read it, take the argument seriously, and then uh, really question why I'm saying what I'm saying. And um, I, that would be ideal. You know, I think it couldn't get any better than that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, did you have any difficulties getting the book uh, finished or published? I had publishers that were kind of so-so on it, and they said, "Yeah, I'll tell you what, when you when you're done, why don't you why don't you send it to me, and uh, I'll take a look." And when I, I think back, I, it was discouraging at the time, but um, I probably shouldn't have been as discouraged as I was. But eventually. Um, reached out to you know, the editors at, at Cornell and, and they, they seemed interested. And so I had the work done and shared with them what I had and um, every step of the way went, went pretty well, but it took some time. It took you know, longer than I, than I anticipated longer than I wanted to, but um, I think it found a, a really, really good home at Cornell okay. university press. And I really do believe that it, they just from beginning to end and just fantastic people to work with. Yeah. So, Nice. Do you have, what's your next writing project? If, if there is one right now. So I'm doing, I'm, I'm always, I'm probably always thinking about the ancient Greeks. I'm, I'm writing fiction these days, uh, just based on my, my military experience. So that's where my, my main writing, writing efforts are, are, are with that and having some early successes with it, which is exciting. But I have been, still thinking a lot about the Greeks and, um, and maybe different innovative ways to think about some of the, uh, some of the encounters that, that more people are familiar with, like, like marathon in particular, um, what would be a creative way to, um, maybe imagine or reimagine some of these famous battles. But, um, so the writing wise, I'm in a slightly different realm these days, but, um, but you know the wheel, the wheels are still turning up there, and yeah. um, like I say, so, so excited to hear what people have to say, and, and I hope they have a lot to say about the the book, and that'll probably direct me in a in a different direction. But uh, but again, as I'm excited about. Mm. Okay, mm. Uh, where can people find you on the web? Do you have social media or anything? Yeah, academia.edu is a good place to start, mm. and um, and then. Um, you know, my email address is on there and, you know, people are, you know, welcome to, to contact me with like any questions at all about anything. And, um, yeah, that's the best place to start. So I guess you'd go to academia.edu and, and search for David Blome, B-L-O-M-E. Yep. yep. I'll come up and, you know, with the, the book, the covers on there and you can, um, yeah, email address is accessible and then people can, yeah, reach out and, and as I get more, if I, you know, it's just kind of where I was with doing the research is if I can start to tie in all of the different writing that I'm doing, all of the different work together somehow, I don't know if that's possible, but, um, but I'm going to try. Then um, once I get, once I figure that out, I'll be ready to, to put together a, a website that, um, that people can access and use for um, all the different writing. So. Okay. Uh, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? No, thank you very much for your time, for having me on your podcast. Oh, yeah, I appreciate it. It was really interesting stuff. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening. You can find more podcasts like this on your favorite podcast feed under the title Military History Inside Out. That includes Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. One great way to support me is to rate my podcasts, either good or bad. You can find more great military history information at warscholar.org, on YouTube at warscholar1945, on Facebook at warscholar, on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Warscholar, and on Twitter at Warscholar. Please support me by following me on those sites and liking my videos. If you like to read, don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I recommend newly published books. The subscription box is on my webpage. Thank you.